people don't start something because they have to have everything ready or they have to know how to do it. They have to have all their ducks in a row before they even start. But the reality is that it's never going to be perfect. It's about showing up. Consistency is way more important than perfection. If you keep showing up and chipping away at something, you're eventually going to get somewhere. Whereas if you're just waiting and waiting and waiting for the right time to start, you're probably never going to get anywhere. Just get started. Whatever that thing is that you're thinking of, just start. Don't worry about it being perfect. Don't worry if you don't even know how to do it. Just get started. Hi, and welcome to the When Women Fly podcast, where we speak with women who dare to pursue their dreams and fly, literally and metaphorically. I am your host, Sylvia Winter. I believe that every woman harbors the spirit of flight. And on this show, each week, we explore the many ways flying shows up and examine what happens physically, mentally, and emotionally when a woman defies gravity, charts her own course, and pursues her dreams, often shattering preconceived notions of what women can and should do. Today, we have a fun and insightful episode, my conversation with Sonia Looney, a professional athlete, world champion mountain biker, podcaster, health and mental skills coach, keynote speaker, writer, content creator, producer, mom, and business owner. But before we jump in, a quick note about When Women Fly and me. A few weeks ago, my husband and I, with our three kids, moved back to Switzerland. I have an episode with a full update coming soon. But in the meantime, thank you for your patience as I work out a few new recording space issues and workflow, not to mention keep up with the newsletter and social media. So thank you. There is no mystery as to why change with a capital C has been on my mind and a central theme to season three. What change have you been navigating? A change of your own volition, an internal one, or a change that's happened to you externally? How has it been? Do you find that letting go is hard? Or is it energizing to have new ways and new options in your life? Change is neither good nor bad, with some huge exceptions, of course, until we layer our perspective over it. It just is. Anyway, as I promised for another episode, Vivant en Suisse, living in Switzerland, so stick around. Today, we get a real treat. This conversation with Sonia Looney is essentially one about wellness in the context of performance and high-intensity pursuits. Flying, biking, surfing, skiing, running, and countless other pursuits in the flow state require discipline, commitment, and focus. But even if we have that, how does that bump up with other things in our life, family on the top of it, that need our focus and our commitment also? This episode is a conversation about Sonia's life emerging as a top-level athlete in mountain biking while balancing well-being, family, and how this experience informs her work today as a health and performance coach and a motivational speaker. Sonia, as a pro racer, has a resume replete with ultra-endurance stage racing, 24-hour and 100-mile mountain bike races, and all on the international circuit. She also hosts one of my favorite podcasts, The Sonia Looney Show, where she prepares tips from solo episodes and has over five years of interviews with some of the most influential figures in the areas of psychology, motivation, habits, wellness, language, and so much more. But this conversation today 
is about how and why our balance of performance and wellness is so critical. How everyday thoughts and mindsets are the single most important determinant of life success. And why navigating life's twists and turns with self-acceptance and clear-sightedness and an open mind leads to empowerment and agency. It's about why we must overcome the urge to focus on results in performance and why we must face our emotions willingly as a neutral observer with curiosity and kindness. And this leaves us more reliably to successful lives. It's about identifying our core values as a path to making decisions, being resilient, and being effective. More than anything else, this is a conversation about the perils of believing we have limits without doing the work to meet them head on, and what returns to us when we show up and put ourselves in the game again and again. Because the showing up is the ticket we need for a meaningful life. Sonia is amazing. I'm grateful for this dynamic conversation, and my hope is that you will find it as helpful and as inspiring as I did. Let's jump into my conversation with Sandra Looney, me from a closet in a little fishing village in the French side of Switzerland, and Sonia in Breckenridge, Colorado, prepping during her comeback to competitive mountain bike racing. Sonia, thank you for joining me today. I first want to introduce you as a multi-hyphenate fusion woman. You're a multi-time national champion of mountain biking, and you race professionally. You're a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two very little kids, and you also own your own business called Moxie and Grit, and you also have a master's in engineering, and you were the first woman to finish the Yak Attack, which is the subject of your TEDx talk from 2015. It's a pretty impressive 10-stage bike race across the Annapurna Circuit and the highest mountain pass at 17,769 feet. So just to lay out a little bit of who you are, and I just really look forward to this conversation. Well, thanks for having me. So I'd love to dig right into kind of how you got started. Where did you start biking and what were you like as a kid? It's interesting. It's all about being open to opportunity and trying new things. And that's how I've become, to use your words, a multi-hyphenate, which I might steal that. I found mountain biking through running, actually. And I found running through trying to figure out who I was. So I started running my senior year of high school with the idea of I was going to train for a marathon. And I didn't really know how to train. So I kept getting injured. And I was also playing varsity tennis at the time. And I had a, got a stress fracture from that. And I started going to spin class at the gym. And from that, some guys invited me to go mountain biking. And a few weeks later was a mountain bike race. And because I had the confidence from running a marathon, I thought, oh, if I can run a marathon, I can definitely do a mountain bike race. Why not? And I did my first mountain bike race and I was all in. So that's to answer your first question. And then I'll, I'll answer your second question and then I'll pause. And what was I like as a kid? It's really interesting. I was very friendly. I always went after the things that I wanted to do. Sometimes my parents didn't really like that, but I just always went after my march to the beat of my own drum. And I wasn't one of the popular kids in high school at all. I was the school nerd that everybody picked on. I was in band. So everybody picked on me because of that. And I actually am grateful for that because it's taught me empathy. Did you feel like your parents had any expectations of you as a kid? 
they had incredibly high expectations in the academic realm. Like an A minus wasn't good enough. It had to be perfect all the time. And that wasn't because my parents were bad parents. They were awesome parents. It's just that they always wanted me to try to get the best out of myself. So that kind of became my own narrative. And that is something that I've had to work through and to improve upon that it's not about being perfect at something. It's about loving what you do and loving the process of it and not necessarily what the outcome is going to be. And it sounds like you did a lot of sports. You weren't one of these sort of single sport kids that I know really struggle today because there's such a push to really narrow down at such a young age. Did you feel pressure to narrow down or was that part of being, was doing many sports sort of part of who you were and what was encouraged? Doing many sports was part of what was encouraged. My, I could pick one sport to do, but I could change it at any time. And I actually played soccer from a young age and I played on a traveling rep team in middle school. So I actually wanted to be a pro soccer player whenever I was young. And I was playing tennis as well, just for fun, not competitively in middle school. I don't think I was playing competitively anyway. But when I got to high school, I had to choose between band and soccer. And I had to pick between the two. And that was a hard decision. And I remember, because I was also in marching band, and I remember standing, we had this special area that we practiced as a marching band. And marching band is actually like a lot of dedicated practice. We had practice every single morning at, I think it was 6.45 a.m., which was called Zero Hour we had evening practices, we had weekend practices. So marching band was all encompassing just like a sport. But I remember looking down at the soccer field thinking like, should I be down there or should I be up here? And I still was able to play varsity tennis in high school because it was the opposite season of marching band. So I was able to do both. And then you have a master's in engineering. So did you have aspirations to go down a different route before you became a pro cyclist? It's funny, a lot of us don't really know what we want to do with our life, especially when we're young and we're faced with making these decisions of picking a major in, in college. And most of us don't even know who we are. I mean, that's always changing no matter how old you are. So whenever I chose to do engineering, it was because I didn't know what to do in university. And I knew that I loved math and I loved science and I was always really good at it. I kind of wanted to do a degree in biology. I kind of wanted to do a degree in math, but I also wanted the practicality of being able to get a job after I got out of school with a bachelor's degree. I had no intention or aspirations of becoming, you know, getting a master's degree or anything like that. But as time went on, I, I found bike racing in college. I was, it was my junior year of college and I found it and I thought, well, I don't really want to go work a conventional job because I really want to become a pro mountain biker. I want the flexibility in my life so that I can train because endurance sports require a lot of training. So I actually decided to go to graduate school so that I could become a pro mountain biker, which sounds really funny. And I got a fellowship to CU Boulder. And I really wanted to move to Boulder from New Mexico because I knew that's where I needed to be if I wanted to be a pro cyclist. So I actually started in the PhD program in power electronics and biomedical engineering. But all along, I knew I didn't really like engineering. I knew I liked the challenge of school. I knew I liked the challenge of some of these math and science classes. But the truth be told is I didn't enjoy engineering. So it was just sort of this thing that I was doing while I was pursuing my career as a pro mountain biker. And when did you decide to be a pro cyclist? After my first race, I decided I wanted to be a pro cyclist. I think I always had a dream of wanting to be a professional athlete because I wanted to be a professional soccer player. And then when I was playing tennis in high school, I wanted to be a professional tennis player. But I didn't know how to become one. And even in cycling, I didn't necessarily know how to become one. But the cool thing about endurance sports is that whenever you sign up for a race, a lot of times you're there at the same time as the pros, which isn't the case when you're doing, you know, a massive, massive sport like soccer or tennis. You're not there with other pros. 
So I was able to make friends with some other pros and the mentorship that they gave me allowed me to figure out how I could find my own path to the top. And I try to do that for others now too. That's a really interesting point. I never quite thought of it that way, but you're right. You do rub shoulders with the pros when you're just even sort of signing up for something as a civilian, so to speak. So it's really interesting. I want to dig in a little bit to what motivated you in sport. Were you looking for something? Was it the sense of challenge that was really gratifying? But what is it that kind of got you to dig deeper as an athlete? I think it's changed over time. I would say early on in my professional career as a mountain biker, I really wanted to prove myself to others. I really wanted that validation. And, and that that's hard to admit that out loud. It's embarrassing to admit that out loud, but it's true. And I think a lot of people can resonate with that. I wanted to prove that I was good enough. And having that fixed mindset is really difficult because every time you show up to an event, if you're not at the top, then that's proof that you're not good enough and proof to others that you're not good enough. And going to yoga actually in Boulder is actually what helped me get off of this perfectionist route of trying to prove myself and, and trying to be validating based on these outcomes. And I learned that it's not about that. It's about knowing yourself. It's about figuring out who you are and what your expectations are whenever you're doing difficult things. And that has become the reason why I do everything that I do now. And that it's not just that, like I love lining up for a race and I'm really competitive. And every time I'm on a start line, I'm, I want to win. But I also am there to encourage others. Like I did this race just a few days ago in, in Steamboat, Colorado. And I did a relay. So we had to start behind everybody at the very back of the field. So I had to pass over 100 people. And I enjoyed the racing part. But when I look at the event itself, I loved passing all the people and cheering for them and being able to connect with them briefly on their journey out there. And, and that's another cool thing about endurance mountain biking is that everybody does the same course and they're out there at the same time. Now it's not about proving myself and getting that validation. It's about figuring out who I am so I can share that story with others. So maybe they can figure out who they are and maybe be a little bit better in their lives. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's like the entry in at the younger ages have a much different incentive than when we get older. And maybe that's partly because we can't perform as, as we could before. But there's a huge learning lesson in that. I think it's also a little bit about self-actualization. Like you kind of have to go through that path in order to get to a point where you want to be in service to others. I think that you have to almost have had some level of success so that you realize that you don't actually need it to feel validated. That's a really good point. I've heard you say that doing imperfect work consistently is a big value of yours. How does that play out for you? And what does that mean? That's my life every single day. I think a lot of times people don't start something because they have to have everything ready or they have to know how to do it. They have to have all their ducks in a row before they even start. Or maybe they're in the middle of a project, but it's just not going the way that they thought. So they're wondering if they should pull the plug. But the reality is that it's never going to be perfect. You might get one day out of, out of many years that goes perfectly, but it's about showing up and showing up and giving yourself the chance to do whatever it is that you're going to do. And consistency is way more important than perfection. If you keep showing up and chipping away at something, you're eventually going to get somewhere. Whereas if you're just waiting and waiting and waiting for the right time to start, you're probably never going to get anywhere. That's such a good point. You know, I get a sense from the way that you speak about your values that you've done a lot of work. I don't think one just kind of wakes up one day and understands what their values are. I wish it was that easy. And you mentioned yoga as an opportunity to kind of make a gap in between the sort of the, 
the action and re- being reflective about it. But can you speak to that? How how have you come to understand your values and hold them close as you make decisions in your life? Well, it's sort of been reverse engineered because I started doing these really hard races around the world and I started giving talks about them because I just wanted other people like being able to help other people is something that's always been really important to me. And people started asking me like, well, how are you doing these things? Like, how do you do a a 10 day mountain bike race where you go up to 18,000 feet and have your brakes fail and still manage to finish the race? Or how do you do a hundred mile mountain bike race? Like, like what's the mental part of the sport? And I didn't really know how I was doing it. It was just something that sort of just came naturally to me. So I decided to go back and figure out how and why am I doing this? So I went into like studying sports psychology, studying positive psychology, and now lots of other forms of psychology, because I think it's really interesting to be able to see how you're doing something and then to be able to actively practice that. Because doing it in a one-off situation where you're not really sure what you're doing or like what sort of mindset you're, you're taking, it's good. But being able to practice that regularly and then being able to teach it to others is such a great way to get better at it. So it's been through self-inquiry, through reading, through learning, through listening to others, and then asking myself the difficult questions and then being okay with the answers. Like being able to say publicly out loud, I used to race my bike because I wanted to prove to others that I was good because I didn't feel lovable. Like most people wouldn't want to admit that out loud, but it's because of the work that I've done. I'm confident enough in myself and who I am that I can say that and still feel good about who I am. I really love the way that you speak about that. And it just sounds to me like you approach your life as a learning lab and all the different parts of what you do, you experiment and you reflect. And it's sort of a little bit scientific in the way that you approach it with this, like a lot of positivity. And it's it's really unique. And I, I really appreciate your tone and what you do. Thanks. I mean, I think that goes back to that imperfect process and imperfect progress. Part of it is if you can be curious and curiosity is something that is so, super important to me, just be curious about what you're doing and why, or even like a new thing that you want to try. And again, it's okay if it, if it doesn't look like the way that you want it to look. And chances are, it's not going to look the way that you want it to look, but just, just being open to that. And it's hard to remain open whenever you start achieving levels of success. And when people start watching what you're doing, that gets a little bit more challenging. And, and you mentioned values and being able to come back to what, what those values are and holding that really close to you, especially as you start achieving success, I think helps ground you. I think that one of the most challenging things that you probably took on relatively recently was adding motherhood to your resume. And I'd love to talk a little bit about that and what the biggest challenge for you has been in balancing your professional goals, which are multi-pronged and now motherhood. And just how does that all work out for you? So I have, she's almost five months old, a five-month-old baby. And I have a son and both, a two-year-old son, and both were born in March. So March 2020 and March 2022. The biggest challenge is there's been a few. Number one, it's being able to accept that the pace at which I'm doing things in my life has to slow down because there's another priority now that has to trump everything. Having two little kids, like they can't do anything themselves. Myself and my husband have to, number one, like help teach them so that they can learn how to do it. But number two, like we still have to do pretty much everything for them at this point. So that's going to slow down the things that your, your goals and the, and the rate at which you achieve those goals. So that's something I've had to come to terms with is, is it okay for me to not achieve things at the rate that I once was? And the answer is yes, because I used to think that achievement was going to make me feel more fulfilled in my life. And that's not the case. Achievement is not the thing that's going to make you feel fulfilled. It's going to be community. It's going to be relationships. And it's going to be chasing those things, the, the person that you become while you're doing the things, not 
actually achieving the things. And again, that's another thing where I think you have to have the experience of doing that before you can actually understand. And because I can tell somebody that all day long, I could have told my younger self that all day long, but I wouldn't have, have believed it. So first is coming to terms with there's other priorities and it's okay if I'm not achieving my goals or going after the things as quickly as I would like. Another thing that I've learned with racing, because this is my first year racing after having two kids because of pandemic and Canadian border closures. As a professional athlete, your job is to take care of yourself. It's, I don't want to call it a selfish pursuit. A lot of people say, oh, it's selfish. I don't think it's selfish in the, the negative way, but you have to be putting yourself first a lot. You have to be putting your training first, your sleep, your eating. It's not a job where you just check in at nine and you check out at five. It's 24-7 every single day, every single decision you make. And you lose control of that whenever you have kids. Like I can't control a lot of things that are happening at night or during the day. And even the day before a race, I have to take care of these little humans. I can't be 100% focused on my race. My routine of getting ready to race and my morning routine of getting ready to race has changed a lot. And just letting go of, of that a little bit and saying, hey, I'm here and my husband and I are calling it, we're in four-wheel drive mode. We're just, it's not pretty. It's not easy. It's not the way that we want it to look. But we're here and we're doing it. And that's what matters. And yeah, just being able to let go of that a little bit has been helpful. Yeah. And going back to that value of showing up and not judging yourself how you're showing up. But if the most important thing is to show up, then then that leads to all sorts of other things. Yeah. And to not compare yourself, like I could sit there and say, well, whenever I line up for the race, nobody else is like breastfeeding a baby and like doing all the things that I'm doing. Therefore, I'm other. I don't look at it that way. I say like, this is just my set of circumstances. Everybody has their own thing going on. It's certainly not an advantage to have kids <laughs> when you're at a race. But I do think that there can be some advantages to that. Like not being so singularly focused takes the pressure off a little bit. And whenever you're distracted by this cute little human smiling at you or this little boy chasing after a balloon, like those types of things, it just helps you think bigger picture because it can be so all-encompassing whenever you're doing, when you're going all in on something. It reminds me of an interview maybe a year and a half ago with Keegan Randall, and she's describing the season that she, after she had her son when she was on the World Cup circuit and she would you know, do her race and then come back and find her son and change his diaper and nurse him and then be out again. And that was before she won her gold medal. And it's just, I think that there is something about becoming a mother that does, it's sort of, we find strength where, where we didn't know we had it. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. I'd love to dig into the question of how motherhood changed your body, what that's meant to you as an athlete, as someone who is very in touch with their body by necessity, and all of the changes that happen prepartum, postpartum, and nursing, they're kind of out of our hands in some ways. How has that part been for you? It's an interesting question because I think that this answer is really different depending who you ask. And I'm almost hesitant to answer because I don't want people to compare it to my experience. So I'll just start with that prerequisite. But for me, I don't really feel like it's changed my body that much. I mean, yes, my body has grown to humans. My body's producing milk. I think the healing process from birth takes a lot longer than three months. It's, you just can't see it. So there are changes there, but I don't think they're impacting my performance. It requires more diligence on a few different levels. Like I have to make sure that I'm eating a lot more than even like it, they say you need to eat 500 calories more a day when you're breastfeeding. And I think that's a lot more when you're an athlete. I think I had some low energy availability problems with my son because I was training and breastfeeding and around the four or five month mark, 
I didn't have any energy. Like I couldn't show up to train well. I, I had, I just couldn't make it up the hills very well. And it was terrible. And I did all the blood work and nothing was showing up as a problem. But I learned that your body fat impacts your hormonal levels. And I think that I got too thin and it wasn't on purpose. It just, I was just at my limit doing everything I possibly could. So right now, a huge priority for me is eating as much as I possibly can. And it sounds amazing, but like, I literally feel like I have to force feed myself all day long in order to maintain the energy levels that I need to train at the highest and perform at the highest level. So that's one thing that I have to pay attention to. From a body image standpoint, I actually would say that it's improved since having babies. Because when I look in the mirror, I don't actually look at the things that used, that used to bother me anymore. I look at my body more in awe of, this is awesome. Like my body grew these two people and my body is still growing a human. Like my daughter is solely breastfed. I'm growing a human and I'm still able to go out there and kick butt on my bike and perform. And that's really cool. And it takes the focus off what it looks like. And I feel good about myself when I look in the mirror. It's so awesome. I mean, I'm just like just celebrating right now everything that you are doing and everything you stand for. And it is added bonus, I think, to everyone that you amplify that through who you are and the things you do. Yeah, I'm just super impressed by you. It's really, really awesome to hear you also just speak to that, just the amazing accomplishment that a female has the privilege of, of accomplishing if it, you know, if it works out, of having a human <laughs> grow in you. And it's, it is amazing and it does shift everything. So thanks for going there. I appreciate it. I have one kind of other question about the pivot of becoming a parent, and it has to do with how your risk tolerance shifted or not, but I'm, I think it may have because it usually does. So I'm wondering how this has been for you. Yeah, especially whenever people look at mountain biking and they say that's a really dangerous sport because you could crash and break bones and get concussions, and that does happen, and that has happened to me in the past. I would say that my risk tolerance isn't that much different, but the events that I choose might be different. Like I like doing some downhill oriented events from time to time, and those have a much higher risk of getting hurt. And because of that, because I have two little people that like I need to be able to physically carry around and do that kind of thing, I'm not signing up for those events because that's a secondary event to my professional career. So I'll be doing more of those in the future whenever it's not as big of a deal. But in a race situation, I'm still all in whenever I'm going downhill, whenever I'm, I'm, but whenever I'm out training, I might be a little bit more conservative, but it's not a hugely different thing than what I was doing before because you don't ever want to be injured and you're never really trying to push yourself to the point where you're going to get injured because then you can't race. You can't do your job. If you break a bone, you're out for six weeks. So generally, I would say my, my risk tolerance is a pretty even risk tolerance and it hasn't changed too much. And have you ha found that the line of fear and when fear sort of becomes bigger than that sort of self-talk of talking it down, has that changed for you after having a kid? I know sometimes we mothers have like these sort of images all of a sudden will pop up at very inconvenient times of our child when we're about to jump off something or go flying or do something hard. Has, has that shown up for you? It really hasn't, actually, because I think that whenever I'm doing the thing, like the challenging thing, I'm so focused on what I need to do that I don't have room to think about anything else. But I do have intrusive thoughts in other areas. You know, like if I'm carrying my kid next to a balcony, I get a little bit uncomfortable. I'm like, well, what if I somehow accidentally drop them off the balcony? Or what if they jump, like somehow jump out of my arms off the balcony? Or, you know, little things like that pop in my mind, but they don't pop in my mind when I'm doing sport. 
That's so interesting. Yeah, you have a really fabulous way of compartmentalizing, don't you? It's really, I think it's just such your advantage. I don't know how that, how or why that is, but I think it's because whenever I'm mountain biking, I I try really hard to be in control as much as possible. And there are times you have to let go a little bit, but I've learned how to take calculated risks over the 20 years I've been doing this. So if I am doing something where I'm afraid, that means I probably shouldn't be doing it. I'm rarely afraid whenever I'm riding my bike. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. You know, when when we fly, it's often in the preparation where there's a lot of anxiety. But once you get at it, it's like, you've got this, right? You've done the preparation, you've trained, and you're just ready to do your thing. I want to um, make a turn here and segue and talk about your podcast. First, just the origin of it. You have been at it for over five years, which is immensely impressive. So shout out there. But why did you start it? And what have you gotten out of it? I started it because it's just another way to disseminate information to help people be better every day. And that's my mission. No matter what I'm doing, no matter what the medium is, is I just want to help people be better because I've had positive influences in my life that have helped me break glass ceilings and break limits that I I never thought I could do. Like most people would say, oh, you want to be a professional athlete? Like, ha ha. Yeah, right. Or, oh, you want to, you know, start a business? Good luck. Like most businesses fail. You know, those types of things that are in the narrative. So I wanted to start a podcast as just another way to bring stories to help create a platform for other people to shine and to bring their knowledge forward so that it could be of service to others. And selfishly, (laughs) there's that word again, selfishly, I've gotten so much out of my podcast because the preparation, and I'm sure you've had this experience too, the preparation for a podcast is a lot of work. But the work is, is, well, I say the work is the reward because you get to study all of these different topics, all of these different people, and that impacts your life and your positive experiences and what you think you're capable of. And the level of education that I have now because of my podcast and the preparation and the books and my ability to listen, like there's just so many things that you gain as a podcast host while you're trying to elevate others. So if anybody out there is just thinking about starting a podcast, start the podcast. Like, Don't worry about if anybody even listens to it. Because a lot of people say, oh, no one's even going to listen. Like, number one, you can't control that. Who's going to listen? But you can control the type of podcast you put out, the information that you're learning, and the connections and conversations. And that alone is worth it. Yeah, it's so refreshing to hear you say this as a seasoned podcaster. And it's true. Like, every conversation you have is this mini collaboration, which there's always a little bit of a high from that. And then also each person that you research is a case study of life and decisions and things that you learn and then things, books, books they've written. That's like a complete masterclass, right? And, you know, had to have the opportunity to, to speak with them and then to share that, right, out for you, just this really unique way when you're at the intersection of performance and well-being and just this, and the, you know, you don't have a slant that's female empowerment, but just by who you are, it's just this really lovely and incredible and inspiring example of just a podcast and another way to message what you are are so passionate about. One of the topics that I've noticed comes up a lot in your podcast is behavior change. And I wanted to take the opportunity to just dig into that a little bit. You've had the opportunity to interview Gretchen Rubin of The Happiness Project and Katie Milkman, who is just such a fan of her as well, and Dr. Judson Brewer. So you think about this a lot, you write about this a lot, and I just wanted to know if there's one thing that has affected you or impacted you as you've been examining behavior change that you could share. 
I'll share two. Number one is that everybody is different. And Gretchen Rubin's book, The Four Tendencies, is a book I highly recommend because she sort of categorizes people. And some people don't like being put in a category, but it helps you understand other people's motivation. For me, I'm somebody that if I just, I read information, I'm all in and I just do it. That's my personality. But a lot of people, if you just give them the information, they can't just do it. They, like, and it's like, why can't you just do it? And it's because they have a different way of motivating. They need a different set of parameters to change their behavior. So understanding that about myself, about my family members, about people I work with, that has been life-changing, I will say, because it's not everybody is like you. So I highly recommend reading that book. And then the second thing is, is from James Clear's work. It's, and I, I was fortunate to interview him on my podcast. It's, it's about atomic habits. It's about small changes that you make. And it's about those small changes building up to an identity. So instead of saying, I need to become a runner or I need to become a lawyer or like well, whatever the thing that you're trying to become, just do the habits on a daily basis of what that type of person would be doing. So be focused on the identity, not the outcome. And that really is helpful. And it helps you decouple yourself from what we talked about earlier, whether it's achievement, outcome, whatever the thing is, because ultimately that's just going to be one data point. And the thing that you're doing to move in that direction towards that identity is going to be, quote, your identity. It's going to be who you, who, who you see yourself as and the trajectory that you're going to be on over the long term. Has your identity shifted after reading these books and sort of where you are now? No, it hasn't. It, it just sort of helped me basically identify what I'm already doing and help me know what I need to be focused on more. Because you're already doing, or I'm already doing a lot of different things, but it's narrowing it down to know what I need to be focused on. Because that can be really hard whenever you're doing lots of different things. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's a great segue. How do you balance everything? I call it intentional imbalance. So there are seasons throughout the year where I'm focused more on one thing than another. There are certain things that have to be at the top of the list. Like a podcast comes out every single week, period. I missed my first podcast ever last week in five years. You would think like, oh, that's so terrible. Or, oh, I'm so sorry. It's like, no, it's okay. I've been traveling. I've been racing. And it's okay to make a mistake. I don't don't even say it was a mistake. It was an intention where I valued resting instead of staying up late one night trying to just get this thing done just to check off a box to say that I've done it. But that said, my podcast is a, a number one top priority. It comes out every single week. And then the other priority is training. That's not something that you could just cram at the last minute. Fitness and health are not things that you can just cram for. They're things that you have to do consistently. So for the listener, it's like identifying what those things are that you need to do consistently. Pick one or two things and just stick to them. And then the other things try and build blocks of time or times throughout the year where you're going to be more focused on that than the other. And have you had periods of time where you've really had to balance your mental health as well? Yes. Whenever, like that was a perfect example of last week, balancing my mental health. I really prioritize sleep. It's a very, very top priority for me. And I would have had to trade sleep and downtime where when you're traveling with little kids and racing, you don't get a lot of that. I would have had to have traded that for a podcast. And I made that intentional decision to value the sleep and the mental health of relaxation and rest over just trying to get this out because it's something that I do every single week. So it might sound conflicting that I say consistency is important. You have to do this thing every single week or or every single day or every single month, whatever it is. You need to do the work for sure. And you need to be as consistent as possible. But there's also going to be times where you have to make those calls where you need to take a break. 
and knowing when to make those calls and why you're making those calls. And as James Clear says, never miss twice. If you're trying to do something, you you get off track once for whatever the reason, maybe intentional or unintentional, just get back on track the next time and then it won't become a habit. Yeah. And it's a long game. And it's, you know, it's, there's this, we're continuing to unfold our lives and I don't, it's too much to put too much weight on one situation, call it good or bad, but that's, that's kind of not going to be helpful for us. One of the sayings that you have is look there, go there. And I wondered if you could speak to that a bit and what, what that means as far as looking for opportunities. I love metaphor and in, in uh, mountain biking, that is something that's really important. If you're looking at the tree or you're looking at the rock that you don't want to hit, you're probably going to end up hitting it. You have to look where you want to go. And then that's where you're going to probably end up going. Even if things are hard, even if you're feeling out of control for a second, which can happen, like look where you want to go. And that applies to life. Like what you want to focus on, that's going to be your reality because our, our lives are just a filter of what, we, what our thoughts are, where, where our intentions, where our actions are. So if you are focusing on all the things that you can't do or you're focused on all the things going wrong, it doesn't mean ignoring the things that are going wrong. But if that is your, that is your primary focus, then you're probably going to start sliding more in that direction. Whereas if you are looking for opportunities, you're celebrating the small wins while holding space for the disappointments and the challenges and the things that aren't going well, but your overall view is focusing ahead on where you want to go, then that's where you're going to end up going. And I think that that is a really powerful thing. And it's something that needs to be practiced because if you're surrounding yourself with negative people all day long or people that are tearing you down or tearing themselves down, that's going to become part of your experience. And positive psychology is called your explanatory style. Two people can look at the same event, whether it's a good or a bad event, and they can describe it completely different. So how do you explain an event that's happening to you? How do you explain an adversity? An example would be like a car accident. And say you got in a car accident and you broke your arm. That's not a good thing to get in a car accident and break your arm and nobody wants that to happen. One person could say, I'm so unlucky. I got in this car accident. Why did this happen to me? My arm is broken. I can't do anything. You can go down that rabbit hole. Or, you know, you could look at that and say, oh, I got in this car accident. It could have been so much worse. There's other things that I can do while I'm healing here. Like it just, it just depends on how you want to look at it. And it's something, again, that needs to be practiced because it's not easy, especially when things are going wrong, to be able to see that optimistic viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And what advice would you have for someone struggling with negative thoughts, some practical advice? I would say talk about it with somebody that you're, somebody that you're close to. Write it down. Like, Try to challenge those negative thoughts. A journaling practice or talking aloud is a good way to do it. And you don't have to do it all day long, but just, just pick one moment in the day or at the end of the day. That's why like a gratitude practice works because when you start looking for the things that are going well, and it takes time if you're, if you're kind of in a negative rut, but if you just start slowly starting to focus on the things that are going well, you'll start looking for them all day long because you know that you have to report back some of these things that are going well. And then it changes how you scan the world. And again, I'm not saying avoid the negative. I'm saying embrace it, hold it close to you as well, but also realize that there's all of these other things going on. So the awareness piece and then trying to figure out what are the other things that you can focus on that are going to help you instead of hold you back. So what does it mean for you these days to fulfill your potential? That's something that is a sliding scale all the time. The first time I kind of bumped up against something with this was when I became world champion in 2015. It was like, well, now what am I supposed to do? Or when I started, like, I'm embarrassed to talk about my achievements and that's something I'm working on. But 
winning lots of races around the world and having having fulfilled a dream for myself as an athlete. Like I don't need any more results to feel fulfilled as an athlete anymore. So what does that mean? Yeah, asking those questions. And, and that comes back down to the service and the community piece because I didn't race my bike for a couple of years and I was still training six days a week and coming to a race, being part of the community is so meaningful to me regardless of what the result is. So fulfilling my potential is just continuing down that path of how can I get more out of myself so that I can help others? What are other things that I can be doing? How can I be selective in what those things are? Because especially when you have little kids, now now I can't travel as much as I was. And in the same way that I was, it just looks differently. You can do anything, but not everything. So fulfilling my potential is narrowing down those things and being able to continue to make impact and continuing to learn and grow myself so that I can continue to bring new information to people too and, and learn from others in the, in the at the same time. Yeah, it really does evolve. Well, I'm going to take the opportunity here because I'm in this role and you're in that role to ask you about those accomplishments and um, just give you a little bit of space to talk about what you're most proud of and some of the hardest things that you accomplished. I can't point to any single thing because I've been doing this for so long, but I can give a, a general, I guess, sentence about it is that my proudest achievements haven't been wins. My proudest achievements have been when I've gotten the most out of myself. So whenever I look at events or things that I have done, it's whenever I thought that I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it or I wasn't going to be able to surpass where I was at. So it's being proud of what I'm doing and being proud of the effort that I put out. And that's now what I focus on whenever I line up for a race or whenever I put something out into the world. It's am I proud of the work that I did? Not is this going to be the best thing that's ever happened? Okay, you're very understated. Can you give one example of something that was just that you couldn't believe you did? Sure. I did this race in Colombia. It was a, I don't know if it was a six or seven day race in 2017. And the race invited me to go do it. It's a, it's a great event. Like Colombians are like so enthusiastic about cycling and it was on ESPN. Like you just don't get that in North America. And the race is called La Leyenda. And I was invited to the race. And I think that the race promoter invited me. They're like, well, this person has a profile. This person is a speaker. They have a social media following. Like they didn't invite me because they wanted me to win the race. They invited me to just bring like, I guess, profile or bring awareness that this race is happening. And there are some things that the, that were said that like not intentionally to be like rude or anything, but it was just kind of like, oh, pat on the head. I'm glad that you're here. Not you're here to win the race. And my, it was a team race and my teammate and I won the race and we ended up like the people that were there was such a high caliber. I didn't think that I would be able to, to win the race. And I remember at registration, there was this really cool piece of pottery that the winners got that was handmade. And I thought, oh, that'd be so cool to have that in my house. And yeah, we won the race. And every time I look at that, it reminds me that don't underestimate yourself when someone else is underestimating you, like just smile and say, okay, yeah. And, and just, you can still go, still go out there and let the legs do the talking. Yeah, right. You can let them underestimate you and just know inside, well, this will be fun. In some ways, I would rather be underestimated than overestimated, to be honest. <laughs> totally. What has traveling around the globe, I mean, you've been to some really extremely remote places, Mongolia, Colombia. I'm sure there are many I don't even know about. But how did that shift what you thought of, what you think of the world and the globe? and did the world seem smaller or bigger after all those travels? There's a couple of things. Number one, it's that we don't need things to make us happy. It's relationships. You can be totally broke. You might have to like 
go to the bathroom in a hole. You might be living in a tent. I mean, most of us fortunately don't have that happening right now in our lives. But the people that I would see doing that, because we would ride like in Morocco, for example, in the Sahara Desert, it's like you're riding your bike through these places and this is these people's lives. And like, we're so privileged. It almost feels bad to be riding your bike in a bike race through a situation so privileged. And even to say like, oh, like, you know, there's people living that way. And but relationships are so important. And that is what makes the world go round, not things, not accomplishments. And it could be easy to get lost whenever you are in a place of privilege where you are going after those things. So that's something that is always front of mind. Being grateful for what we have, basic things like somebody picks up your trash for you every week. That's pretty cool. Someone paves the road for you. You pay taxes and that happens and people complain about taxes, but taxes are really helpful because you get to have clean water to drink and roads that are paved and garbage pickup. Like just, it's so easy to take things for granted. So I just try and remember that I live in a place where this is the norm, but that isn't the norm for everybody. And to just be grateful for really small things. Yeah. It sort of makes the world bigger and smaller at the same time in a very human way. Gosh, we're going to have to round this out a little bit. So let me fold into the question about the metaphor of flight, which I'm really curious about this in, in your situation. This is a podcast where we celebrate the spirit of taking on challenges and reaching beyond predetermined heights. And it's about passion and pursuing that passion. What does that metaphor mean for you? What does flight mean to you? Flight is freedom. Like that's the very first thing that pops in my head. It's so awesome to be able to go after the things like not all women have this opportunity in their lives to go after the thing that they want to do. So it's freedom to be able to do that. And it's it's a privilege. It's a journey. It's it's exciting. It's scary. It's, it's embracing the full human experience because whenever you're doing challenges, whenever you're trying to take flight, it's going to be hard. But that's not a bad thing because that means that at the end of the day, when you look back at your life and say, well, what did I do or how did I feel? You've experienced the full range and you know that you didn't leave the cards on the table. You had the courage to go after it. Yeah, totally. We're going to round out in a quick speed round. What have you done by 9 a.m. on a typical day? I have taken care of my kids and had a coffee. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Are you an introvert or extrovert? I'm an ambivert. Oh, I love that. Right? A both and? Yeah. <laughs> what is something that people often get wrong about you? That I'm super happy and upbeat 100% of the time. I have my challenges and I work through them. What are the top three places that you would like to go that are on your bucket list? I would like to return to Nepal. That place is absolutely incredible. I'd love to go to Cambodia and Vietnam, and I'd like to go to the Dolomites in Italy. Oh, man, you wouldn't regret that. I can tell you that firsthand. What's on tap for you now, or what's energizing you for what's next? I'm super excited about racing. Like I said, I had to take a couple years off, and I have a six-day mountain bike stage race that starts in a few days. It's a very high-altitude race. I'm sitting at almost 10,000 feet right now, and I live at 100 feet now, so it's <laughs> It's going to be fun, but I'm just so grateful to be back in the community. And the start line is just a celebration of the three years of hard work and not giving up through two pregnancies and hormonal problems and pandemics. Like I never gave up. And just being here is just such a privilege and such a celebration. Such a celebration. And you were, I mean, you were injured in June, right? And you, you're still just back at it. And I, I don't want to underestimate or understate the amazing feat that of you just showing up at altitude and the rigor of what you're, you're doing up there. How's it going? How are you feeling about it? 
I feel good. I did another race at altitude last weekend and I got, I had the fastest female uh, lap in the, in the relay category. So the fastest, yeah, I was proud of that. And yeah, again, I did this race 10 years ago and it was one of my first, it's called the Breck Epic. It was one of the first stage races I ever did. And it sort of set me on this path to go around the world, you know, to make this my life. So it's, again, it's such a celebration. I'm excited to go and give it my all and do my best and reconnect with this community, see the beautiful mountains and just be so proud to be here. Yeah, I'm super proud of you. I have to say, I'm just a big fan of you and just really appreciate you sharing everything that you're doing. How can listeners follow you and find out more about you and the podcast? Probably my newsletter on my website, sonyalooney.com slash newsletter and subscribing to the podcast. I'm also really active on Instagram. It's at sonyalooney. But I like the newsletter and I like the podcast because Social media, there's so much you can't control. And a lot of times people are like, oh, I, I didn't get to see that story that you put out there. I missed that picture. I missed that. I didn't know you were doing this race. And it's just because they didn't see it, which is completely out of my control. And having a newsletter, being able to send an email a couple times a month or every week, depending on where, where I'm at in the season of my life, is really cool. And do you have any final thoughts for listeners or anything that I didn't ask that you'd like to share? Just get started. Whatever that thing is that you're thinking of, just start. Don't worry about it being perfect. Don't worry if you don't even know how to do it. Just get started. I love it. Thank you, Sonia. Good luck to you. And I can't wait to just track what you're doing. Thanks so much for having me. So there we go. A woman unafraid to tackle the biggest challenges. I've known Sonia through her podcast for a year or so, followed her interviews, impressed by her candor and insights in the life lessons around us as competitors and parents, creatives and entrepreneurs. Those of us who have adventure and travel in our DNA always benefit from talking about health and wellness and learning from each other and supporting communities that foster our empowerment. So thank you for showing up and listening again or for the first time, to the When Women Fly podcast. Your time is valuable. You've been listening to the When Women Fly podcast, season three. This is an independent creative project founded by me, Sylvia Winter, to amplify stories and expand our vocabulary when it comes to ways in which we fly, how we do it, and why it is important. If this episode or any episode resonates with you, share it, send it to a friend, and you will have amplified a story that just might spark a pivotal moment for someone. Also, I know you have heard this before, but leaving a five-star review on Apple or now Spotify is a huge boost for us. Subscribe to the When Women Fly podcast each week and don't miss a beat. Okay, have a great week. I send you love and light and strength and flight, however that shows up for you today. The world needs women who fly. Let's keep learning together. Be bold, be brave, and fly. I'll see you next time.